This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Most of us are, unfortunately, familiar with the physical symptoms that go along with the AIDS virus. We may not know, though, that HIV-AIDS also has cognitive effects, serious ones. Since the advent of combined antiretroviral therapies in the mid-90s, many people with AIDS have been able to forestall many of the physical effects and live longer, healthier lives. But although their immune functioning has improved dramatically, an ongoing National Institutes of Mental Health study seems to be showing that the effects of HIV on the brain are unchanged, and that they're also becoming more noticeable because people are now living longer than they used to with HIV and AIDS. Surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, the cognitive effects that they're looking at are worse in some demographic groups than others. And the group they're worst among is Latinos in New York City. Fordham psychologist Monica Rivera-Mind is one of the investigators on that study, and she's been working on figuring out why that is. A little later on the show, visiting the AIDS quilt. But first, Monica Rivera-Mind joined me in the studio recently to talk about what she's found so far. Monica Rivera-Mint, welcome. Thank you very much, Nora. So give me some background about the cognitive effects of HIV. What does it actually do to the brain, and what are the symptoms that we can see? Many people have focused on the physical effects of, of the illness, such as pneumonia, different types of cancers, etc. But uh, HIV actually has a particular affinity for the central nervous system, the brain in particular. And uh, even very early on in the illness, while people still seem relatively healthy, they can uh, begin to experience cognitive changes and decline in their neurocognitive function. So things like um, problems with attention, concentration, slowed processing speed, maybe having uh, some more difficulty with learning new things or problem solving. Especially early in the disease, the cognitive effects can be mild, they can be spotty, they can be in many different areas. And then as the disease progresses, those cognitive uh, changes tend to become more severe over time. Now, I've always understood the AIDS virus as being something that just sort of lowered the fence and allowed other viruses to get in or other right. diseases to get in. Is that the case with the cognitive effects as well, or is it actually the effects of, of it, HIV? It's the actual effects of HIV. So cert certainly um, the virus does allow for an increased incidence of different opportunistic infections in the central nervous system in the brain. But even so, besides that, separate from that, the virus itself can cause an array of cognitive problems ranging, again, from these mild spotty problems early in the disease all the way to a full-blown dementia later. In the pre-ARV days, did people know about these effects or have they begun to emerge only now because people are living longer with HIV? I would say in the 90s, even in the early 90s, the cognitive effects of HIV were beginning to become understood and characterized. There have been some really great research groups at Johns Hopkins, at the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Center at UC San Diego and other places that have uh, documented the effect of HIV on the brain. What's really come to the fore since then is since 1996, when the therapies for HIV improved significantly with the onset of combined antiretroviral therapy, people initially were hopeful that we wouldn't see these these cognitive problems anymore, that as people be hopefully were able to stay immune compromised and not have as many immune problems, that the, the cognitive effects wouldn't be so profound. However, that hasn't turned out to be the case. So in this longitudinal cohort study that I've been working on as a co-investigator at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, 
we have seen that the rates of neuropsychological impairment continue to be rather high. And um, just to clarify, a, mm-hmm. a longitudinal survey is one where you're looking at a certain cohort of people over time? Correct. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Um, now, what do these, the symptoms that you see long term, do they look like another disease? Do they look like Alzheimer's or mad cow disease or something right. like that? Right. So um, not so much like Alzheimer's necessarily, uh, probably more like a Parkinson's. So HIV-associated dementias is the most you know significant cognitive disorder associated with HIV, and only a relatively small percentage of individuals with HIV or AIDS get that, and it's usually later in the disease progression, but that it's a full-blown dementia. It looks quite a bit like Parkinson's probably to, to people who aren't familiar. What does it actually do to your brain? The virus doesn't necessarily infect the neurons. So in our brain, we have two core types of cells. We have neurons, uh, which are unique to the central nervous system, and then glial cells. And HIV doesn't necessarily attack those neurons. It attacks the glial cells that are kind of the support system for the brain. And so in doing that, the brain tries to uh, mount an immune response. And in that immune response, it can cause a what what they call a, um, a neuroinflammatory cascade. It, like it's, it's inflammation essentially in the brain. And that inflammation can be really toxic to the brain. And eventually all of these neurochemical changes that occur thanks to the virus being in the brain, it can cause, you know, structural changes. You have abnormal cells in the brain. You have ultimately neuronal death, death of neurons, but not directly from the virus per se, but because of all the havoc it's causing in in the brain environment otherwise. Were there reasons to believe that ARVs were going to help with this? Again, people were hopeful that antiretroviral therapies or ARVs would help because they would hopefully help preserve immune function to keep viral load down in the central nervous system. So if you control HIV viral load in the central nervous system, hopefully you'd be able to stave off the effects of the virus. And unfortunately, these medications have varying levels of penetration into the central nervous system. So some penetrate very well, others don't. And the virus is still able to get in and have this uh, negative impact. Can you just describe very quickly what viral load is? So HIV viral load is just the amount of virus circulating in either your your blood or in your central nervous system. And we measure that in in the central nervous system by doing uh, spinal taps or lumbar punctures and getting a sample of cerebral spinal fluid. And then we can measure how much uh, viral load is in the central nervous system. And what would affect the viral load in a given person? a person's own immune response. So if a person can mount an adequate defense against the virus in the central nervous system, then they might be able to control it at least early on on their own. Over time, the virus does, you know, can continue to replicate and, and the body might not be able to, to control the virus any longer. And then certain medications can keep the viral load down. But it's, at some point, eventually, the, you know, the medications lose their efficacy and there aren't other options. And eventually people run out of medication options. Now, you have specifically been researching HIV's effects on Latinos. Yes. Why focus on this? People of color, so African-Americans and uh, Latinos, are disproportionately impacted by the epidemic. So nationally, I believe Latinos make up about 13 or 14 percent of the U.S. population. But in New York City, they make up about a third of the new cases of HIV AIDS. So they're disproportionately impacted by, by the disorder, first of all. And uh, once they contract the illness, they appear to be having worse outcomes compared to uh, non-Hispanic whites. So 
they're they're more likely to get the the disease, and once they get it, they they appear to be having worse outcomes. So, there's some research to indicate that um, that Latinos die younger than non-Hispanic whites with HIV, that they have higher mortality rates. Uh, we've we have a, a a paper right now actually under review where we actually have some some preliminary evidence that HIV-positive Latinos actually suffer from uh, something called neuropathy, which is a peripheral nervous system disorder. It's like diabetes, like neuropathy, where you have uh, changes in, in your in your sensory sensory function in your hands or feet. And they seem to have a higher rate of this dysfunction compared to non-Hispanic whites or African-Americans. And then I have uh, the study that was recently uh, published as well that suggests that um, in at least with a, with our cohort here in New York City, that our HIV positive Latinos are significantly more impaired compared to our non-Hispanic white HIV positive counterparts. I'll talk more about that in a second. But mm-hmm. first, are there other people working on other groups in this study, or is it just on Latinos? My study is is part of a much larger study. That's a, a national multi-site study looking at uh, at cohorts of HIV positive individuals from all backgrounds. And I've focused on Latinos in particular because they they are an understudied population who appears to be suffering disproportionately from the illness. Now you are working in New York because this is just your area, but you also had some findings that were especially interesting, given that we are in New York. Right. What did you find about HIV positive Latinos here? Right. So, so first of all, our within the greater context of of this na- one of the the multi site studies that I'm I'm working on, it turned out that our demographic here, our HIV positive Latinos, are the most neuropsychologically impaired demographic in all of the United States. So so one of the studies has six different sites with with individuals coming from San Diego, Seattle, DC, Texas, uh, and St. Louis, and then ourselves here in New York City. And out of, out of all of the, those different regions of the country, and out of all of the different ethnicities, HIV-positive Latinos in from New York City are the most impaired demographic. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a that's an exceptional question, and I'm working on that right now, trying to figure out and disentangle what are the contributing factors to this worse neuropsychological test performance. I think that uh, part of it might be related to uh, another study that I'm working on, a study funded by the National Institute of Health to look at medication adherence behavior among Latinos. And so, as I mentioned before, one study that was recently published with our group showed that our HIV-positive Latino sample was more impaired than our non-Hispanic whites, and I wanted to understand why why this might be. And one potential factor might be cultural differences in medication-taking behavior. And I did a pilot study to see if there are any differences in, in this respect. And what I found was in a group of 100 HIV-positive adults who 59, 51 were Latino and 49 were non-Hispanic white, that the Latinos reported significantly lower medication adherence rates compared to the non-Hispanic whites. What kinds of behaviors were associated with that? Uh, It's based on self-report that they didn't take their medications as consistently compared to to non-Hispanic whites. So they took them less often, but unfortunately, according to their self-report, they took their medication about 80% of the time compared to about 95% for non non Hispanic whites, and that eighty percent could be related to actually worse outcomes in some ways because it's just uh, adherent enough to cause viral mutations and resistance. And when people uh, become resistant to their medication, if 
you know, heaven forbid, if they pass on their HIV to somebody else, that next person will inherit all of the medication resistance that the original person passed on to them. So it's like the world's the worst of all possible worlds. Right. So it's so. um, So, yes. Yeah. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Monica Rivera Mint. Mint is an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham, and she's one of the investigators on a large-scale study that's looking at the cognitive effects of HIV-AIDS. In a few minutes, visiting the AIDS quilt. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Monica Rivera Mint. In addition to taking part in the nationwide study that we've been talking about, Rivera Mint is also working on identifying the reasons that HIV-positive New York Latinos might not adhere to their medication schedules and on figuring out what can be done to better the situation. I asked her about that. It's early on, but we're looking at several sociocultural and cognitive factors that could be related to adherence. With From the sociocultural perspective, we're looking at uh, acculturation, so how identified people are with majority U.S. culture and also their Latino, respective Latino culture, looking at their attitudes and self-efficacy around their, their cultural beliefs and feelings, we're also examining health beliefs, their relationships with their physicians, how they perceive those relationships. We're also doing comprehensive language examinations to see how well they speak English, and if they're bilingual, which many of, most of them are, how well they speak Spanish. Um, and uh, looking also at depression and all sorts of things. And what we're finding so far is that HIV-positive Latinos here in New York City, in, at least in our sample, appear to be highly acculturated, you know, pretty identified with, with U.S. culture, but also highly identified with their culture of origin, so they're bicultural. So that's, I think, one unique uh, thing about our cohort compared to potentially uh, people from other other areas of the country. We're also finding that they do tend to be bilingual, but that they are English-language dominant you know, they've, they've been very willing to participate in the study. And again, preliminarily, it, it looks like um, cultural attitudes and values are related to um, medication adherence, but it's still very preliminary. Just theoretically, why would your, say, level of acculturation, mm-hmm. why would that affect whether or not you took your pill? Based on my own personal background, so I'm Puerto Rican and Colombian. I'm, you know, the I was born here in the United States, but my parents are from uh, those other countries. The thing that got me thinking about the issue of medication adherence was watching my mother take her her medications and talking with her about it. So she's lived in the United States for over 35 years. However, when she takes her medications, she doesn't always take them as prescribed. And when she has antibiotics, for instance, she might save some of them for next time and not take the full course, which we know is not a good thing. So she might hold on to her medications, not take them as prescribed. She might wait a really long time even before going to see the doctor. There, So there are all sorts of, of things, I think, that might be wrapped up in, in culture and where people are from and attitudes about seeing uh, a doctor and being cared for in, in traditional uh, medicine that might represent barriers. You know, we, we talk a lot about uh, literacy and the importance of being able to read and, and, you know, understand what you're reading. But there's also this notion of health literacy, which is something that we're also examining in this study. And that has to do more with being able to navigate the medical system, being able to understand what a prescription bottle says. And, you know, these things that are actually quite complex, but that nobody trains you for, nobody really spends much time thinking about or talking about, and, you know, at least looking at my own familial experience as an exemplar, you know, it could really be a potential, um, a, a potential barrier. Why are New York Latinos in particular suffering from the greatest cognitive impairment? 
Right. So again, so one hypothesis is this issue of medication adherence that it, there might be differences here uh, related related to that. Um, but I think there are other things that we have to explore as well. You know, for all we know, you know, it could be genetic. I, I don't know. It could, you know, it could be genetic. It could be, you know, other other factors that we haven't even started to 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 look at yet with with regard to other psychosocial factors. There there are many possible options. So I don't know. So this is just one step in many potential avenues to research in this area to try to figure it out. Who is participating in your study, and how did you get them to participate? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so uh, my recruitment for my study has been in part uh, based on individuals who are already receiving care at Mount Sinai, so they're already connected to the institution, and we've been able to recruit from that source quite a bit. However, in the last year, I've become uh, involved in in my community in East Harlem, where, where Mount Sinai is, and I've tried to uh, get connected with community-based organizations in order to do a more community-based recruitment. And so as part of that, I've been become involved in the Harlem Community and Academic Partnership, which is a consortium of academicians and community-based organizations who have gotten together for a very long time, at least once a month, to work on health-related issues to reduce health disparities in this community. And these initiatives and these projects are informed and driven by the community. So many times, historically, researchers have come into these communities, particularly these vulnerable communities with, with lots of socioeconomic and other difficulties, kind of swooped in gotten their data and left and they haven't given back to the community or had their their hypotheses and their research informed by the communities and this has resulted in a sense of disenfranchisement by those communities and and also you know a lack of benefit sometimes for for uh, the people who've participated in the studies and I've been uh Thanks to my participation with an organization in Mount Sinai called the Center for Multicultural and Community uh, Affairs, CMCA, I've gotten to learn a little bit about uh, community-based and participatory research where the research is really informed by the the people who are going to be part of the research. So it's not just, you know, a top-down approach. So it's really informed and they participate and they uh, they have a say. And then once we do receive findings, those findings are given back to the community to, to help inform the community and, and help them benefit from the research. So when I when I designed the study, I didn't have that in mind per se. But since then, I've tried to get connected with the community actively. And as part of that, for instance, I'm involved with the uh, Harlem United, which is a very large organization dedicated to serving HIV positive individuals here in New York City. I believe they they uh, provide services for over, over 5,000 uh, individuals in New York City. And as part of that program, I'm doing pro bono neuropsychological evaluations or reduced fee evaluations. And again, trying to give back to the community, stay linked with the community and be informed by the community in order to to not only recruit, but to make sure that I'm asking the right questions in the right way and that they benefit from this research in the long run. Speaking of benefiting from the research, Mm -hmm. how would you hope as you go on with this and as you complete these studies that this information would be used in the real world? Right. Oh, I, I'm all about the real world. So I'm really glad you, you brought that up. So uh, in the short term, at the individual level, for instance, uh, with these uh, individuals that we're recruiting from Harlem United, I'm providing them with the results of the neuropsychological evaluation in order to help their treatment providers 
inform how they might need to change or tailor their interventions to help uh, provide the most benefit for their clients and, and, you know, and any participant who wants this information. And, you know, if we can help in any way, we're more than happy to do so. In the longer term, I see this, uh, this research as being the foundation to inform culturally tailored interventions to improve medication adherence among HIV positive Latinos. And I also hope that this will be one piece in helping to understand this this bigger issue as to perhaps why Latinos are experiencing worse health and cognitive outcomes with HIV here. Ideally, what would you like to see this leading to? Better health outcomes, less disparities. Monica Rivera-Mint is an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham. Monica, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Nora. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, when we talk about people living with HIV and AIDS today, it's easy to forget that just the act of talking about the fact that someone had AIDS was once fairly radical. That wasn't that long ago. In the early to mid-1980s, people who died from AIDS-related causes often weren't memorialized in the same way that somebody who died of a heart attack might be. Social stigma, and in some cases, funeral homes and cemeteries' refusal to deal with the bodies of those who died from AIDS, prevented a lot of people's loved ones from acknowledging their deaths publicly or from having a grave to visit later on. One response to this was the AIDS quilt, officially called the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. The quilt was started in 1987. In the last 21 years, it's become the largest community arts project in the world, and sections of it are displayed all over the country. The Names Project was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1989. But for visitors, particularly those who've lost someone to AIDS, the quilt is much more than a political statement. From Stephen Emmons at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine, we have these voices and sounds from that city's display. On this late November evening, dozens of people, both young and old, gather in a large hotel ballroom in downtown Portland. Matthew S. Castle. Heavy black curtains cover a long row of windows. The lights are dim. Warner Robins. 160 panels of the AIDS memorial quilt lie on the carpeted floor. Each commemorates a victim of AIDS. As the names are being read, volunteers are unfolding the quilt as they pull down the squares, lift the quilt so that all the color and beauty and love can be released as they move from one quilt to another. John P. Orzulak, also known as Joni. Well, this is Dave Baker, and I'm one of the volunteers, one of the many, many volunteers just helping out and, you know, make sure the food and drinks don't get past this line and make sure people don't walk in the panels and assist them in finding different panels. I can show you one. Right, this one right here. Bachman, I remember him. They had the pictures of when he was young and his pet dog and his family, brothers and sisters. And here's his eulogy that someone wrote right here. As you see, there's three different butterflies here. Well, I'm not surprised on the butterflies because he liked butterflies. I would say that I figured out once about 95% of my friends from the mid-70s are all gone now, passed away from AIDS. 
because it was a terrible period, a pe period of great uncertainty, not knowing, and misinformation, and paranoia, and a lot of prejudice. And I will add just one, a man by the name of Eric, who performed Macbeth better than I have ever seen it done since or before. My name is Elmer Shelton. Well, I am 32 years old. I'm African-American. I'm gay and HIV positive. Um, I've been positive for nine years. But for me, my reality is that I know at some point this virus is going to claim my life in some way or assist in claiming my life. And, and that's a really scary thing to think about. I'm Carolyn Frank. I'm 18. Well, I live right by Castine, Maine, and there's a a panel that has a hat and a t-shirt. Stale Raymond Gordon's. There's a, a painting or a drawing of a tree and an American flag. There's some seagulls, which probably a lot of people from Maine have on their quilt and some gingerbread men. Ronald T. Juanita. Tim K. Hi, I'm Deborah Friedman, and uh, I helped families and friends make their panels as uh, in the beginning of the Names Project. And this panel here for Roland Punky Rotting, the whole family came. There must have been about five or six women, um, and they knew exactly what they wanted. Of course, the picture of Punky and his nana. And then there's a book that people can open up where different people wrote uh, messages uh, to Punky. Dear Punky, you took Punky, I a love part of Punky. You Thank you for all son. the good times we shared together through love life. Love brother, love Ronald. dad. Dad's had a terrible time. Dad's had a really, really hard, hard time expressing the sadness Mom that they felt. John L. Finally, my best friend of all time, Larry Lewis. I'm Douglas McDonald, and I'm here for the uh, workshop for the uh, World AIDS Quilt Project. Well, right now, I'm, I'm sitting down here and, uh, in front of the sewing machine and, and um, my sewing supplies, and I'm looking out towards the panels of all the, the quilts. We've had a few people come in. Um, for some design advice as far as putting together a quilt for one of their loved ones and friends. So um, at least we'll get them started. It's for my friend Dana, who died three and a half years ago from AIDS. Just a big-hearted, kind person. You see the background is, is uh, the clouds, because he was a, a steward. He was worked on an airplane and uh, for a long time. and. So I love the, the puffy clouds and the blue sky, and then I think we'll probably put a plane and, and maybe a bottle of wine, because he was also a waiter for many years. Even when he wasn't feeling well, we continued to have lunch together. We'd each get one of everything on the menu, so then we could share, and everybody, we both had everything, and we enjoyed doing that. And he liked to travel, and he camped, and he made bookmarks, and I've given those out to a lot of people. That's something I'll have on the quilt as a bookmark. He'll offer me some closure. And a feeling of contribution, I think he would enjoy this. No matter, I joked uh, that uh, he should make his own before he died so that nobody else would have to do it. I was <laughs> I said, I know I'm going to have to end up doing something like this and help. Because he was the one who was into the handcrafts, the handicrafts, you know. The panels are a pretty good size. They're the size of a coffin. Three by six. 
Oh my. Isn't that amazing? I never, I hadn't thought of that either. What it means to me to be living with HIV is, um, is an opportunity for me to live my life as I, I want to live it. Um, enjoy every moment, take advantage of every opportunity that I'm given. But it's also hard. It's hard to know that, you know, coursing through your veins is this virus that is attacking you from the inside. And even if you don't feel it, you, you know it. And so there, there's good days and there's bad days. Um, but you try to get through it the best way you can. If, when I would die from HIV or AIDS, I don't think I would need to be immortalized in a, a panel. And if I was, um, it would be more important to me to have the names of my friends written on it somehow because my friends have been so important to me and so instrumental in, in me dealing with this virus. I would just hope that it would be um, a celebration of my life um, and people could look at that panel and, and sort of get a good sense of, of who I was as a person. Donnell Michael e. T. I'd like to add my old friend from the neighborhood, Ed Chan. And this completes the reading of the names. Oh, time to fold the display up and put it to bed. Most of these will be held locally. And uh, the Names Project Northern New England and are actually some will be held over to Franny Peabody House as well and the rest will go back to Atlanta. Saying goodbye. Again? Again. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.